Well, this morning we're talking about the unforgivable sin, and uh, it's not uncommon, actually, even in the last few months, for people to have asked me as a pastor, what is the unforgivable sin? We all know what it's like when we've uh, sinned against someone, and we desperately want their forgiveness, desperately want the relationship to be restored, but that person is still angry and not willing to forgive. I'm sure for some it's all too painfully uh, aware of what that is like. Well, if that's how we feel with someone who has no influence whatsoever over our eternal destiny, then how much more, for, for those of us who believe in God... Who holds the power of eternal life and eternal death? How how terrifying if if you believe in God to think that you might have committed the unforgivable sin. Uh, this is not merely an academic question for many people. Uh, now there might be some people who say, Kieran, don't be silly. What are you talking about? God uh, is a forgiving God. He's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of love. But please note the words of Jesus in. Verse 32, Matthew chapter 12, which, by the way, I hope you'll keep the Bible open in front of you and and, and see what Jesus says in verse 32. He says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, it's actually easy to skip over the first part of this verse where Jesus says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But but this is actually an astonishing statement because, you see, the Son of Man that Jesus is talking about is a figure that is described by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 where he has this vision of the Son of Man. And, and, And just hear what this Son of Man is like. In my vision there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven he was given authority glory and sovereign power his dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and Jesus is saying you can insult this guy and you'll be forgiven I If you know your Bibles, you know in the book of Esther, if you were to even approach the king uninvited, you are taking your own life in your own hands. If you know the story of Nehemiah, if if you were to be in the presence of the king just looking sad and upset, that was enough to bring the death sentence. You you couldn't uh, approach the king uninvited. You couldn't look him in the eye. You couldn't turn your back on him. You couldn't speak unless spoken to, and you certainly weren't allowed to speak against the king. I mean, like, imagine speaking against, like, Xi Jinping in China or Vladimir Putin in Russia. You certainly weren't able to speak against the king. And yet, what does Jesus say? He says, you can speak against me, the king of kings, and you'll be forgiven. I'll be willing to forgive you. What did Jesus say that as as they nailed him to the cross while he hung there, the Romans? And the Jews, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And so in the Lord Jesus, there is an infinite willingness to forgive. We're going to get to how that actually works a little bit later on. 
But that's the first part of verse 32. What about the next bit? He says, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What's going on here? Is the Holy Spirit like more sensitive than Jesus? Or is he higher up the pecking order? Well, uh, to understand this statement, we need to understand the context of the earlier story that we had read to us where Jesus has performed this amazing miracle. Have a look, verse 22. They brought uh, to Jesus a demoniac, a man who was possessed by a demon, who was blind and mute, and Jesus cured him so that the one who had been mute could speak and see. And the thing to note about the Gospel of Matthew is that this is not the first miracle that Jesus has performed. In fact, I did a count of the Gospel of Matthew so far, and it's about the tenth miracle that Jesus has performed. And so the Pharisees know about these healings. For example, the healing of the leper, the healing of the paralytic, the healing of Jairus' daughter, the healing of the two blind men. The Pharisees know about these, and yet how do they respond? Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, that this fellow casts out the demons. Do you note that they don't question that a miracle has been performed? They question how the miracle was performed. And so we move from this amazing miracle to this outrageous insult to the Lord Jesus. Um, In Isaiah 5, verse 20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Jesus has done this amazing miracle of a man who is blind and mute. Goodness, light and sweetness. And what do the Pharisees say? No, this is evil, this is darkness, this is bitterness. That's what the Pharisees believe and say. And so Jesus, in mercy, rather than cancelling them and writing them off, Jesus, in mercy, pleads with them. He makes a case. Three irrefutable arguments. He, he wants to engage with the mind, not to park the mind at the door, he, he, he engages with these logical arguments. There's three of them just quickly in verse 25. He's basically saying, why would Satan go around casting out Satan? That's what you call shooting yourself in the foot. It doesn't make any sense. The second argument in verses 26 to 27 is, is to say, how can you accuse me of using Satan's power and not your own people? who are doing exactly the same thing as I am. You're being totally inconsistent. And then finally, thirdly, he's saying in this parable about the strong man, he's basically saying, so there was a power that was at work in this man who was blind and mute, to make him blind and mute. Then I've come along with an even greater power so that now he can see and he can speak. If I received my power from Satan, how could I possibly be so much stronger than Satan and so much against what Satan was trying to do in this man who was blind and mute? doesn't make sense. And so he caps off the argument in verse 27. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not in collusion with Satan. I'm in collision with Satan. I'm not performing these miracles by the power of Satan. I'm performing these miracles by the power of the Spirit. And I do find it interesting in terms of prayer and our relationship with the Holy Spirit, how in verse 27, the Lord Jesus attributes the coming of the kingdom to the presence and power of the Spirit. Did you note that? But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. In other words, the coming of the Spirit and the coming of the kingdom are virtually one and the same thing that the kingdom is established through the outpouring of the Spirit because the Spirit of Jesus is the King of the kingdom. And as we pray, his kingdom comes. But part of what's happening with this miracle that Jesus has performed in verse 22, and I want you to mark this well, is that the Holy Spirit is trying to tell people who Jesus is. There's so many times in the Scriptures where... um, We're told that the point of the miracles and the signs and the wonders is to tell people who Jesus is. So the Apostle Peter on Pentecost Sunday, when he gets up in Acts chapter 2, here's what he says in in, um, Acts 2. He says, this Jesus of Nazareth was a man pointed out to you by God, how? With miracles, wonders and signs that God did among you through him. God is pointing him out to you through these miracles. The writer to the Hebrews goes further in in, um, chapter 2, verse 4, and says, God also testified about Jesus, how? By signs and wonders, various miracles, and get this, and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit. So here's what's happening, friends. Through the miracles, God is taking a massive loudspeaker through the miracles and the signs, and he's saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is mine. Do you catch that? God is pointing this man out through the miracles, and the Spirit in particular is pointing Jesus out through these miracles. But the great irony in this story is that even though the Pharisees have eyes to see, They're blind. And even though the Pharisees have ears to hear, they're deaf. So much so, so blind and so deaf that they say, no, no, this is not the spirit. This is Satan. So Jesus warns them lovingly. I love how Jesus doesn't cancel people that we would be so inclined to cancel. You know, the self-righteous. In love, in verse 31, he's pleading with them. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. What? How does that work? Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but not blasphemy against the Spirit. Which one is it, Lord? How does it work? Well, I think the best teachers are always the ones who are able to make you think, force you underneath to inquire. Firstly, Jesus says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. But it's so clear from the Gospel of Matthew so far, Jesus makes it crystal clear that the condition for forgiveness is repentance. 
And, 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 and you can, I'll even allow you to get your Bibles and underline these bits so that you get the point, okay? So this is in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus' first words as um, a, a public preacher. These are his first words in his ministry, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What are you supposed to do when the kingdom of God breaks in? Repent, Jesus says. Then again in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, um, the, it's, he says it over and over again. From that time, Jesus began to preach. What's the implication when it says Jesus began to preach? It's that he continued preaching, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then I'll throw in one more for good measure. Chap- Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to what? To repentance. And so when Jesus says people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, clearly in the context of those verses, he's saying every sin and blasphemy for which you are willing to repent, to say sorry, to say I was wrong. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Remember, we've already said that the Spirit is trying to say something to the Pharisees loud and clear through the miracles of this deaf, this blind and mute man being healed. What's the Spirit saying loud and clear through this 10th miracle in Matthew's Gospel? What's the Spirit saying to the Pharisees? Jesus is mine. Jesus is God. Jesus is king. In other words, the Spirit is saying to the Pharisees, you need to repent. You've got Jesus all wrong. He's not moving by the power of Satan. He's moving by the power of the Spirit. You need to repent of your assessment of Jesus and bow the knee before him. Admit that you're wrong. So he's starting to get a picture of what the blasphemy of the Spirit is in this context. But let me ask you an interesting question. Why is it that we can speak against the Father and we're still able to be forgiven. We can speak against the Son, the Son of Man, and we're still able to be forgiven. But when we speak against the Spirit, that blasphemy will not be forgiven. What, why is that? Got your attention? Let me have a crack at why this is. It's because the work of the Father and the work of the Son is external, but the work of the Spirit is internal. It's inside of us. Okay, stay with me. So what's the role of the Father in our salvation? The Father planned our salvation and the Father sent the Son into the world. We know that from John 3, 16. What's the role of the Son in our salvation? The role of the Son in our salvation was to die for our sins through his life, death, and resurrection to actually accomplish our salvation. What's the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation? The role of the Holy Spirit is to take what the Father has done and what the Son has done and to actually apply it to our hearts so that it becomes real and meaningful. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to who Jesus is and then in light of that to open our eyes to who we are in light of him. And so um, 
an example of this was in one of my readings this week when Peter was out fishing. Right, They're like, Jesus, we've been fishing all night. Uh, and so, okay, but you say, so I'll go out and I'll catch the fish, right? So another miracle. And again, what's the purpose of the miracles from those scriptures? It's to point who Jesus out is. The Holy Spirit is saying, this is my guy. This is Jesus. And so when Peter realizes who Jesus is, do you know what he says? He comes to him and he says, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see who Jesus is, what he's done. He does the internal work. In John 16, verse 8, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. You see, part of what Jesus is saying is that the human heart is so resistant to God, so resistant to the Lord Jesus, that without the Spirit's help, without the Spirit invading our hearts, we'll always run away, we'll always resist what he is doing. The heart is not neutral. The heart is not neutral ground. In John 3.19, Jesus says, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And remember, the context in John 3.19 is that Jesus is talking to another Pharisee And he says to him, I'm sorry, Nicodemus, but unless you are born of the Spirit, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, again, the whole role of the Holy Spirit is to make us born again, to see who Jesus is and to be awakened. So there's this atheist philosopher called Thomas Nagel who touches on actually this idea of of our preference to, to resist and to run away. He writes this. He says, in speaking of fear of religion, in speaking about the fear of religion, I don't mean to refer to the entire, to entirely reasonable hostility many of us have toward established religions and religious institutions. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something much deeper, namely fear of religion itself. I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true and are made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And my cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. Picture the Pharisees there with Jesus. The problem is that they have a cosmic authority problem. Even though the Spirit is speaking to them loud and clear, about who Jesus is. They refuse to bow the knee. The stubbornness of the human heart, the rebellion and rejection of the human heart, the resistance of the human heart to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says that apart from the Holy Spirit, all of us have a cosmic authority problem, which is why we need the Holy Spirit. And so here's how John Piper sums up the unforgivable sin. He says, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Spirit is an act of resistance 
which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever his convicting power so that we're never able to repent and be forgiven. In other words, he says, okay, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, that internal conviction, but you won't have it, so have it your way. That's what the Pharisees are doing. So how do we respond to a passage like this? Well, it could be that there are people here this morning who know in their heart of hearts that the Holy Spirit of Jesus has been poking and prodding and pleading with you to turn around, to repent and to bow the knee to Jesus. But despite all of the poking and all of the prodding and all of the pleading, you still resist. You still run away and refuse. You're like an eagle that spots a carcass on a a piece of ice flowing in the river and and he lands and he begins to eat and, and he knows that it's dangerous because the water's flowing to a great big waterfall just ahead. But he looks at his wings and says to himself, I can fly away in an instant. And so he goes on eating. And just before the ice goes over the waterfall, he spreads his wings to fly, but his claws are frozen in the ice. And so there's no escape, either in this age or in the age to come. There's a warning for us all here this morning that by the delay of repentance, sin strengthens and the heart hardens. The longer the ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. So is the spirit of Jesus calling you this morning? None of us here knows when our toying with sin will pass over into irrevocable hardness of heart. None of us knows when that point will be. Well, you've heard the word of warning. Will you now hear the word of grace again in verse 32? Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. And so the Son of Man stands ready this morning by his Spirit to offer complete and full forgiveness to all who will bow the knee, repent, and bow the knee to Jesus. Can you hear him knocking? Jesus says this morning, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and opens up the door and lets me in, I will eat with them and they with me. Do not forgo the opportunity to let Jesus in, to bow the knee. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love the Pharisees so much that you are willing to warn them about their hardness of heart. Thank you for sending your spirit to poke and to plead and to prod to us that we would turn away from sin and turn back to you. And Father, we pray that by your spirit, St. Philip's would be a place where your forgiveness flows freely, freely we've received, freely we give. 
Father, we pray that we would be quick to forgive and quick to ask for forgiveness. And if there's some of you this morning who've got your defences up, you've got your armour on and your weapons up, Jesus invites you to lay your weapons down this morning, to give up the fight, to stop kicking against the goads, to lay them down and to let Jesus in. So we say, Lord, come Holy Spirit and breathe afresh on us today. Amen.